It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Happy Memorial Day to you, if you are listening on Memorial Day. If you're not, if it's after Memorial Day and you're hearing this, hope you had a good weekend and uh, were able to spend it with some uh, family and friends that you may not have been able to uh, hug or touch or be within six feet of, but at least you got to see them again. Uh, So that's nice. The show is made possible by patrons like Bill and Gene and Ben, Nick, as well as Robin and Keith and Daniel. Manuel and Eric and Teresa and Terrence, I appreciate all of the support. You can become a patron as well. Uh, head on over to thepetecalendarshow.com. You'll see a link up at the top uh, where you can click that, and uh, it'll take you to the patron page. And you can get really cool stuff. Swag, as we call it. By the way, got some stuff coming in the future. Pretty excited about it. Been working on it for, gosh, it seems like forever. <clears throat> but now that I got the logos up and uh, uh, running. Thank you, Schaefer Smith. Got the logos up. Now uh, we can start applying it to various items. If that's a hint you want to take, okay. The show is also made possible by folks like Mattress Man. By the way, Mattress Man doing the big Memorial Day weekend sale, and you can get a free box spring when you purchase a Biltmore mattress. These are Biltmore mattresses, the Biltmore collection from Restonic, made in Fayetteville. These things are top of the line. They're, well, they're at the Biltmore, right? These are the well, not at the Biltmore house. They're at the hotel uh, at the Biltmore. So fantastic, top-of-the-line, high-quality mattresses. And get a free box spring this weekend. Uh, also, if you want to go get an adjustable base, there are some other mattresses that if you buy those, you can get a free adjustable base. So you can call or you can visit the store for details. There are some restrictions that apply, so see the store for details. It's all part of the Memorial Day sale. Sleep now, pay later, finance a new mattress for up to 24 months with 0% financing. Uh, They have all of the beds. They really do. My wife and I, we bought our memory foam mattress from Mattress Man years ago, uh, probably about uh, seven years ago now, and we love it. It's the first memory foam mattress we ever had, uh, and uh, I'm not sure we're ever going back just because we love the memory foam so much. Uh, but they do have inner spring mattresses as well, if that's your uh, preferred mattress. Uh, they have pillow top mattresses. I owned one of those. I loved the pillow top mattress I had for years. And uh, natural latex mattresses as well. They have uh, they have the hybrid mattresses. By the way, they're doing a big blowout on hybrids. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, trying, I'm looking here. Do, 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 do. Yeah, rock bottom prices, clearance, and uh, discontinued mattresses. So uh, they've got a whole bunch of these hybrid mattresses that you can ask about and get details at mattressmanstores.com. That's their website. They have five-star local delivery service, white glove, uh, free five-star delivery service, local. They have the 120-day comfort guarantee. Experience the difference at Mattress Man, buy local, and sleep better. So the Department of Public Instruction, I guess I should tell you the official t- the official name here, the Information Analysis Section of the Division of the School Business at the NC Department of Public Instruction. All right. We just call it DPI, right? DPI. Every year they put out uh, a report. It's called the Highlights of the North Carolina Public School Budget. Dr. Terry Stoops at the John Locke Foundation writes about this, and uh, this report has now come out. It usually comes out in February, but 
uh, due to the pandemic. They were late in publishing it. Uh, and so according to the DPI budget analysts, all right, so these are people, like, I'm going to go out on a limb. I don't know any of these people, but these analysts, I'm going to just go out on a limb and just guess that they're probably not right-wingers, right? They're probably not uber-conservatives, Trump-supporting Republicans that are at work at the Department of Public Instruction. But they might be. I don't know. I doubt it, but maybe they are. Um, they put out this uh, this report, and they run the numbers, and they found, they, as they do every year, what the average teacher salary is in North Carolina. And the average teacher salary is 54682 so fifty four six, almost fifty four seven. Rounding up, it's fifty five. So fifty four seven. That's a pretty good salary. It's actually higher than the median income for a household in North Carolina. Okay, so you can, and this is the average. So there are people who make more. There are people who make less. And I should point out, this includes the local supplement. Okay, I'll get to that in a minute. The two thousand nineteen two thousand twenty average pay, average salary. Uh, was an increase of about $740 over the previous school year, which is like 1.5%. DPI declares that North Carolina's average teacher compensation now ranks second only to Georgia here in the Southeast. So we're number two. I remember, like, I'm old enough to remember when this was a pretty big deal to have a ranking that was high in the Southeast and in the nation and making sure that we're paying teachers what they're worth and all of that. Um, although I think a lot of activists still don't think that we are, mainly because the Republicans are in charge. But anyway, in recent years, North Carolina teachers have enjoyed sizable pay increases thanks to state legislators and county commissioners. The statewide average salary went from forty-four thousand nine hundred ninety dollars, forty-four nine, in twenty fourteen. So that was six years ago. It was forty-four nine, six years ago. It is now almost fifty-five. Right. So it's gone up. What uh, from forty-four to fifty-four? This is ten thousand dollars in six years. That's pretty good, don't you think? Right. That's pretty good. That's like twenty-one and a half percent increase. Also featuring a 5.3% increase in the average between 2018 and 2019. So this climb in the um, uh, the salaries in North Carolina led to a comparable climb in the rankings of North Carolina, according to the uh, National Education Association Teacher Salary Rankings. The NEA is the teachers union, and they put out their ranking list every year. They take all of the salaries, they put it on a list, and everybody then fights over what it means. And when we are low on the list, like uh, for years when, when Republicans took over after the Great Recession and, uh, you know, the former Democratic governors and the former Democratic lawmakers uh, had basically spent us into oblivion, blew billion-dollar budget holes in our uh, in our budgets, and uh, there was no money to pay teachers, so they started furloughing teachers firing them, hiring freezes, uh, they, they froze their pay, and uh, this led to the the, uh, the teacher's pay ranking falling for North Carolina on that NEA list. We fell down to like 48th, 49th, whatever, like worst in America. And so then Republicans take over, and of course now they're getting beaten up by the same Democrats that blew the budgets. Um, they are now beating up the Republicans because they want power back, right? So they're using it as a weapon. They beat the Republicans up saying, you don't care about education. Republicans then proceed 
to go on a pay hike tear for teachers. Uh, uh, what, seven straight years would have been eight, I think, if uh, Governor Cooper hadn't vetoed the budget. Okay, so when the ranking put us at like 48 or 46, I forget what it was, this was the huge news. Like, you could not read any kind of news article in North Carolina that had to do with education or the budgets or the Moral Monday protest marches and all of that stuff, right? You you couldn't read a single one of these articles without seeing that stat that we were, you know, last in America, according to this NEA list. Now, if you take the salary that they're being paid now, like 54000 that actually puts us 29th in America. All of a sudden, when the when the ranking started uh, going up for us on that list, all of a sudden, a lot of these activists and Democrats, they started uh, poo-pooing the list for some reason. All of a sudden, now, this list wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> they started saying, well, you know, this is just averages, and uh, that's not really... Uh, you can't really compare us to all these other states. Like now, all of a sudden, there was this qualification going on. So, oh, and by the way, if you adjust for cost of living, North Carolina is in the top 20. If you adjust for cost of living, because it's, it's not fair to say, well, look at New Jersey. They pay their teachers, you know, $100,000 a year, whatever it is. Yeah. And, you know, a 500 square foot studio apartment up there costs what? $7,000 a month to rent? I don't know. So the the cost of living is important to factor in. And if you do factor it in, North Carolina ranks in the top 20. Um, the NEA has not released their rankings list yet for this year, by the way. So why was this year's increase so small, 1.4%? Why was it so small compared to previous years? Well, that was because the governor vetoed the budget, which, by the way, kind of regretting that. Are you now teachers? Union, I should say, teachers union, because those are the ones who tanked it, right? I think a lot of uh, a lot of the frontline workforce uh, in public schools would probably have taken the what was it four and a half percent pay raise. Uh, this is the thing that always kills me. Like it's always these leaders that are like, "We demand all or nothing, all or nothing, all or nothing." It's like this litmus test. Instead of this idea that take what you can get now from your political opponents who control the process, right? They're the majority. Take what you can get now and fight for the rest later. Like, that's the idea. You just, you keep coming back. But that's the thing. They weren't interested in the pay raise. They didn't care about the pay raise. And honestly, when you're making 55K on average, right, it's it's easier to not care about the pay raise. So you, you're you're not really interested in that. You're interested in using the issue as a weapon. Right. That's that's the main benefit here. And that's why they stood by Governor Cooper in his veto of the budget, even though and they had the opportunity, by the way, the Republicans offered the opportunity to do the pay raises separately. And Democrats and the governor fought them on that, too. So if you look at the state salary schedules, they set the minimum salaries and then you can add stuff on to it. So the average. uh, So this is why people kind of get misled when they look at the schedules and they say well that's just the sal- look at the salary schedule yes the, the schedule gives you the minimum and then stuff tax on to that you so teachers also get performance bonuses they get annual leave pay they get local salary supplements these are from the counties and this is really important because local supplements are additional payments to teachers that use local tax dollars and they're different right city of Asheville uh, Buncombe County uh, they give different supplements 
uh, they have control to give different supplements. I think they uh, I think they match them. But uh, the, so this school year, out of the state's 115 school districts, 109 of them gave local supplements, according to the highlights reports. Uh, of this report, districts provided, here's the average supplement. Now, again, this is just an average. So there are going to be counties that give less, counties that give more, but this is the average supplement. You ready? $5,200. $5,200. So of the 54,000, about five grand of it is local supplement, which takes you down to like 49. So, and that's really, if you look at the average base salary strip out all of the other stuff the average base salary is 48k which is the median household income by the way in north carolina okay uh so there's that also numbers can be um impacted influenced these numbers can be impacted by school districts that hire a lot of rookies and the teaching profession generally speaking uh in a state like ours where you're constantly growing Generally speaking, you end up with a lot of new teachers, young teachers, because there's a huge demand for uh, for staff because you have a growing population. They're building new schools. You're putting more teachers in. And so you're just trying to hire as many people as possible. And that means you're recruiting from other states. You're recruiting from all of the uh, from the state colleges that are cranking out new teachers. And so what does that mean is if you have new teachers coming in, they make less. And so that can actually drive down the average salary number. Right, because if you have a lot of people coming in at the thirty-five thousand starting pay, which is what it is, by the way, thirty-five k starting, no experience, no certifications, thirty-five k guaranteed step pay raises of a thousand dollars a year for every year for your first fifteen years. That gets you to fifty k by your fifteenth year, guaranteed. Okay, uh, and that again, that doesn't include the supplemental funding. That's just state supplemental funding at the county level you earn on top of that. You also can earn things, you know, your performance bonuses, tutorial pay, um, mentor pay, other assignments, whatever. Uh, also not included in these uh, numbers, benefits like the pension. Um, also, uh, as uh, usually people will point out, they only work 10 months a year. And so this is, yeah, so this is a full year salary based on a 10 month uh, work year. And then, of course, you get the teachers who respond to that saying, well, we work more hours in the 10 months than we do in the whole year. And then you start getting into fights about, well, who's actually working more? And and I always end up saying nobody believes that they are paid what they are worth. Everybody takes work home with them. I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people take work home with them. I don't know anybody that works a 40-hour work week, right? So... Uh, that's the latest numbers. So we are somewhere. I I imagine we're going to move up that NEA ranking list. I imagine we will, but I don't know. I, I suspect we will. But the average teacher pay now in North Carolina is just under fifty five thousand dollars. So, uh, what else? Education Secretary Betsy DeVos issued new Title IX rules to protect free speech and due process for students accused. Uh, of harassment or uh, assault. Okay, so the new rules. This is, by the way, by Robbie Soev. So I, I, at this point, you'd think I know how to pronounce his name. He writes for Reason.com, and um, he says this Title IX is the federal statute that governs sexual misconduct in school, uh, in colleges, and uh, thus completing a process that began more than a year ago when the government first unveiled its proposed changes. The new rules 
aimed to protect victims of sexual misconduct while also establishing fairer procedures for the accused. The department believes the new rules will balance the scales of justice on campuses across America, according to a Department of Education spokesperson during a press briefing. And uh, the governor, so here's... um, Here's what it does. The government basically abolished the single investigator model. That's good news. Uh, this is the uh, this previously permitted a sole a, a one university official to investigate an accusation of misconduct, then to decide which evidence to consider and produce a report recommending an outcome. You can see the problem with that right away. You got one person that's going to be determining this. Where's the check and balance on that? Under the new rules. The final decision maker must be a different person than the investigator and a finding of responsibility can only be rendered after they do a hearing where they have a representative for the accused. So someone's accused of doing something bad. They get to have essentially a lawyer there and that representative, the accused of the accused is able to pose questions to the accuser. Does this sound at all familiar? Yeah, it's called cross-examination, right? Cross-examination, the ability to face your accuser, which was always absent in these kangaroo courts that colleges were putting on uh, and where where you would have uh, some guy goes out on a date with a girl and um, then he dumps her and she uh, makes an allegation and then the school just throws him out of school, right? Now, I'm giving that as an example. This is not to say that, you know, every single case is that. I'm not saying that at all. There are definitely cases of abuse and harassment and all that that occur. And if you want to actually protect the victims and you want to give them justice, you'll make sure that the process protects everybody's rights involved. You have to. Like, this is one of the things, too. I don't understand why this stuff gets handled on the college campus. It's the most, it's the most infuriating thing. Like, just... Hand this stuff off to the cops and to the and to the district attorney. If these are crimes, the university shouldn't be pretending it's the justice system. Anyway, um, the new rules narrow the scope of actionable sexual harassment. Okay, narrows that scope, so it cuts out conduct that should be protected under the First Amendment. Obama era guidance had defined sexual harassment as quote any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. The new rules keep this definition, but add that the conduct must be offensive to a reasonable person, severe and pervasive, which means what? A single remark shouldn't get you thrown out of college, right? In practice, this should mean that schools will no longer initiate Title IX investigations that impugn free speech, he writes. He goes on to say that the new rules are also uh, going to end the pernicious practice of universities initiating Title IX investigations in cases where the alleged victims are not interested in this course of action. Because under the previous guidance, any university official who became aware of a potential Title IX issue had to report it, and that would then trigger an investigation, even if the victim didn't want an investigation, right? Like, this this seems fundamental. Again, this seems fundamental. And here's a shocker. You may want to sit down for this one. Victims' rights advocates say they're going to fight the new rules in court. I know. Who would have thought, right? Uh, Catherine... Lahaman, Lahaman, I think I'm pronouncing that right, 
uh, current chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and the former Obama administration official who presided over the changes that compromised due process. So this is the person who set up the kangaroo court criteria. This person is now the current chair of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and uh, she slammed the reforms as, quote, taking us back to the bad old days that predate my birth when it was permissible to rape and sexually harass students with impunity. (laughs) Do you think that that's what has occurred here? Does that sound at all reasonable? Does that sound at all in line with what I just described the process to be? That's just insanity. These people are nuts. They're just nuts. He calls it a gross misrepresentation of what uh, Betsy DeVos has done, uh, though not an unexpected one, he says, given how irresponsibly activists and members of the media have characterized DeVos's work on all of this. But it's a big day for the restoration of basic due process and free speech rights in schools. The new rules will take effect in August. Now, whether or not there's going to be any students in any of these colleges, that is another question. Um, finally, I have a piece here at NC Policy Watch. <laughs> I know, I know. Leftist, lovable lefties at the NC Policy Watch. Uh, this is a piece written by Jen Bourne. Not exactly sure what she does except advocate for schools or something. But this is funny. I just, I'm not going to go over the whole piece here just because it's not worth it. But she says, ask a public education activ- uh, advocate. When our society began doubting and undervaluing public schools, and you will get a different response depending on whom you ask. (gasps) No way, really? You're going to get different answers if you ask different people a question that's kind of open-ended? That's interesting. It also, by the way, that her question assumes a premise, doesn't it? It assumes a premise that we, right now, undervalue public schools. I would ask a question, do we? Do we actually undervalue public schools? Right? It is literally the top priority in the state budget. <laughs> literally top priority. There is no other area that consumes more spending than education in North Carolina. In our the, it, like that's our budget. Right? She says some advocates say that public education in America began to change after the publication of the 1983 report A Nation at Risk. Yeah, that you hear that all the time, don't you? <laughs> you, know, you know what that tells me? It, that doesn't tell me that some advocates think that. It tells me that she thinks that, right? The fact, <laughs> the fact that she plucks this this esoteric report from 1983 and traces it all back. Like, this is when we started devaluing our public schools was this 1983 report. Oh, because, yeah. Right, you know why? It's because it's Ronald Reagan. That's, that's right. Yeah, he hated kids in education, too. Um, Others point to the need for schools to shift their focus from child development to market-driven forces, such as longer school hours to accommodate working parents. Others, really? No. Who says that? Others might argue that economics have always dictated the priorities uh, of... uh, and organizational models that define our public schools. Never child development. You know what she never mentions in here? The factory model and the social conditioning towards progressivism. I would submit... That's actually what has led people to undervalue or begin doubting the value of public schools is when they send their kids off to the schools and they come back as little Marxists. I think that's probably a large driver of the doubt and undervaluing. Shio does not 
offer that up as one of the potential answers that all of her advocate friends came up with. I wonder why. It almost makes you think that she only surrounds herself with people of a certain mentality. Are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice on how to be prepared for one? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old-school traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He's going to hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time. It's American-made because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear, Old Grouch's on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. Also, this show is made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Her phone number is 333-4483. Her website is mountainhomehunt.com. I have had good realtors. I've had experience with not-so-good ones. Rowena and her team, they're good ones. They're great ones, actually. They outsell 99% of the real estate agents in the entire state. Okay, call the only agent that I would call if I'm looking for a house or if I'm looking to sell my house. Call Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. And finally, the show is also made possible by Schaefer Smith. Have you seen the logo of the Pete Callender Show? He did that. If you're trying to set up your website, maybe you need a logo, call my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design. He can help you with logos, graphics, photos, an online store, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. He does this for professional services, corporations, small businesses, entrepreneurs. If you know now the importance of having a good functional website, Get in touch with Schaefer Smith. Make your site look professional, user-friendly for both your customers and you so you can navigate it and fix it and adapt to whatever the market demands. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. John Hood is chairman of the John Locke Foundation, and he had a piece at Carolina Journal uh, last week titled, We Can't Keep Our Schools Closed. And uh, despite my views on public schools in North Carolina and in America and in general, I agree we cannot keep the schools closed. Um, He says our elementary and secondary schools are going to reopen this fall. They have to during the past three months of what he calls disruption, dismay, and despair. The three Ds. Sorry, just channeling my inner Dr. Mandy Cohen. He says he has never doubted that the schools will reopen. There really is no practical alternative to reopening schools. Life, work, and education must proceed. Nevertheless, he says, I understand why some parents are concerned about keeping their children safe. We should all be concerned about their safety. So, if circumstances are such that a parent or a caregiver can watch the kids without the household sacrificing too much income... Families might to consider homeschooling as a safe and sustainable option. We're talking a purposeful, well-crafted homeschooling program. Not something that's just, you know, he says, you know, jury-rigged during uh, an emergency shutdown, right? Really think about it. And now that, you know, a lot of families have sort of gotten a taste of it, uh, have some experience with it, um, maybe they learned that they really don't want to do it, and maybe some of them have learned that, oh, I can do it, uh, and this is something that they want to do. You know, consider that. He says, after all, 
every trip that your kid takes to and from the school, there is a small but worrisome risk of death on the road. Right? I mean, like, you want the kids to go to school safely and everything in the fall, but they could die on the way. Oh, is that not what's safe? Oh, okay. Right. So everyone's worried about the COVID-19. Right. You actually have a... um you have a greater risk as a student of dying on the way to school than you do at the school getting COVID-19 and dying from the COVID. Do you know that? So this is the National Safety Council data. It is the rate of fatality by motor vehicle accident. And um, for children between the ages of 5 and 14, so you get two different uh, age population groups going on here, 5 to 14 and then 15 to 24. Okay? So 5 to 14 19 deaths per 1 million children. 19 per million. That's for the younger group. For the group that's 15 to 24, this is not going to surprise you, it's 150 per million. 150 kids between the ages of 15 to 24, uh, well, and adults, but 15 to 24, that's the risk. 150 per million. According to an analysis of federal data by the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, you've heard me quote their stuff before. We interviewed one of the analysts with the organization. The rate of deaths associated with COVID-19 for the same uh, uh, population groups, 0.15 per million. That is in the age group of 5 to 14. 0.15. Not even one in a million. Not even one in a million. It's it, it would be one in ten million hundred. It would be one in a hundred million. Right, that's your odds of dying as a child between the ages of five and fourteen. One in a hundred million. Um, that's again, that's not to say it doesn't happen. It's to say that the risk is very low. Go to the next group up, ages 15 to 24, that is 1.37 per million. So a comparison, car accidents to COVID. Car accidents for the younger group, 19 per million versus COVID, 0.15 per million. For the older group, car accidents, 150 per million, COVID, 1.37, so one. These are really, really low risks. He says, now let's be clear. The initial mandatory closures of our schools and our businesses and other institutions, they were not sold to us as a way to eliminate the threat from COVID-19, either to the kids or to the adults, okay? It's not possible. The threat can only be mitigated somewhat. That's it. We can try and mitigate the virus and the impact, but we can't get rid of it. Social distancing, quarantining, none of this was ever meant to stop the virus, to kill the virus, to prevent all deaths. It wasn't going to happen. It couldn't happen. The the virus is way too contagious, and it had uh, already seeded itself all throughout uh, the country. Thank you, New York City, its subways, Mayor uh, uh, Governor Cuomo, and China. Thank you to all of them. Um, So the threat can only be mitigated somewhat until we get therapies or vaccines. And by the way, this has occurred. Like This is one of the, the good things about... Uh, this uh, this time period, what the lockdowns have in fact bought us. Jim Garrity at National Review has a piece 
called What Eight Weeks of Lockdowns Have Bought Us. And uh, there have been some benefits to this. It hasn't all been pain, right? So first off, with only a handful of exceptions, most of America's hospitals did not get overwhelmed with a lot of patients, right? That's good news, right? That was a positive effect of the lockdown. I'm not saying um, that it was all worth it. Okay, I just it's important that if we're going to look at the the downside, there are some benefits uh, that we attained as well. He says, thankfully, most hospitals across the country never even came close to their maximum capacity levels. The Army Corps of Engineers spent more than six hundred sixty million dollars to turn 17 convention centers and other sites into emergency field hospitals. Nine of the 17 hospitals never even saw any patients. Um and so you could say, oh, what a waste of money, I guess. That's true. because I mean, but we didn't know that at the time. We thought there was going to be this overwhelming of the system. I almost get the feeling, too, that there are a lot of people that were hoping that the system would get, would get overwhelmed and it would collapse the entire system so they could say, aha, see, our system stinks. But because it didn't happen, I can say, huh, see, our system is pretty good. <laughs> right? It is. Our system is pretty good. The healthcare system in America gets a lot of bad rap, but um, it did pretty well. It's doing pretty well. Anyway, um, with each, here's another uh, benefit. With each passing week, our ability to treat COVID-19 is improving. Uh, they've learned things like uh, having patients lie on their stomachs or their sides. Uh, that's been very helpful, can actually get higher blood oxygen levels by reducing pressure on the lungs. Uh, and despite the massive push to get ventilators, we learned uh, we don't really need them. Not so much. Doesn't really help a lot of people. Uh, we've got uh, research that has continued into a handful of drugs that might mitigate the effects of COVID-19. Uh, we have the development of potential vaccines that are in the works, right? Um mentioned one the other day that uh, was it Moderna lab that uh, says they're already in phase two of the clinical trials. Uh, what else? Number three, our testing capacity. It's been beefed up, right? We're doing like two million tests a day right now in America. That's impressive. Good job, us. Good job, USA, USA, right? Two million tests uh, a day. Impressive. What else? We've bought some time in an unprecedented global race to develop a vaccine. Uh, that's, again, what flattening the curve helped us do. We managed to keep the hospital systems from being overwhelmed. That saves lives. It saves the lives of other people who need the emergency departments, uh, and they can actually get the help that they need instead of being turned away uh, or being forgotten about once they get to the hospital because the hospital is uh, so overwhelmed. That's what was happening in Italy. You had a lot of uh, patients that were coming in that were not COVID-related, um, but they were not getting care because there weren't enough people and beds and space and equipment and time, you know? Um there are now about 100 potential vaccines in development around the world. That's a good piece of, of news. Um, what else? We've managed to avoid widespread shortages of personal protective equipment by ramping up production, right? Good job, private sector, in cranking out uh, a lot of these uh, PPE, the gowns and the gloves and the masks and the whatnot. Uh, there's been uh, this, this surge of production, which has been fantastic. That's really, really good. Um, the collective sacrifice has also generated a lot of advantages in this fight. And he says, and I agree, it's worth noting, right? It can't all be, this is one of the problems um, with the way 
the coverage is constantly about the negative and the sensationalist and oh my god we have you know more new cases more new cases and there's never a stop to go back and say wait a minute were these models wrong or uh and if they were we need to acknowledge that they were wrong and here's how we're fixing them and hey isn't it good that they weren't that way or uh like it because by not going back and essentially correcting the record and uh, saying, oh, wow, we hyped this as X, and it turned out to not be X, and so that didn't happen. Yay. By not doing that story, it conveys to the public that all we're ever here, uh, this uh, this belief, it conveys that all we are dealing with is negative. It's it, it's like uh, the movie where like the bad things just keep happening one after another after another, you know? And there's never any, oh, wow, we thought this bad thing had happened and oh it didn't oh look at that it didn't yay us right we we could use some good news i i think that's okay we can use some good news <laughs> it doesn't all have to be and i know that doesn't get all the clicks it doesn't get all the clicks it doesn't get the eyeballs it's one of the it's one of the great um oxymorons i guess of the uh, field of journalism if you will that in order to get you to read the story that they are telling you is true and correct and this is the information you need and it's valuable, in order to get you to read that story that they want you to trust them to tell you, they have to lie to you to get you to read it. <laughs> have you ever noticed that? It's kind of right. <laughs> it's really, it really is quite the juxtaposition where I have to, I have to scream uh, a misleading headline to get you panicked uh, in order to get you to read the story, and then trust me, I'm telling you the truth here. This is this is really the story. This is the truth. I okay. I may have I may have exaggerated a tad to get you to read the story, but once you got here, now I'm not exaggerating anything at all. <laughs> all right, I've never understood that component. Well, I do understand. It's it's why the reporters oh we don't write the headlines. Mm-hmm. A lot of them do, actually, by the way. I want to shift gears and uh, bring to you a, a review of a book. I'm not going to go over in detail the book itself. Um, let's see here. I have it someplace. Bradley Watson. He is the Philip McKenna Chair in American and Western Political Thought at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where he also directs the college's Center for Political and Economic Thought. Uh, he has vigorously defended the integrity of the Constitution, and he has criticized the progressive encroachments in his book called Living Constitution, Dying Faith, Progressivism and the New Science of Jurisprudence that was published over a decade ago. He's got a new book called Progressivism, The Strange History of a Radical Idea. And uh, what he does is he goes through historians, right, these these historians who were progressives, and um, how they influenced and shaped education, uh, and it, the, specifically the education of history um, it, it, throughout American history here for the last hundred years. Uh, and in this piece, this is at the Claremont Review of Books. It's a piece written by Alan Guelzo. I've got it linked up at the Patreon page. Uh, it's pretty lengthy. I'm going to give you just the high points here. Guelzo is a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, and he is the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era at Gettysburg College. Okay, He says, progressivism 
in its original 19th century form, so, you know, 1800s, uh, in the original form, was an offspring of pessimism. Part of the pessimism was a revulsion at what the Civil War had done, and more to the point, failed to do. So, because the Civil War had had taken America, whose driving intellectual forces were enthusiastically religious, artistically naive, he says, and uh, absolute in their moral self-confidence. It took that country and it plunged it into a four-year bloodbath led by incompetent generals, pockmarked by genocidal massacres, uh, and frothing with stupidity, greed, and fraud. Overall, approximately one out of every 10 white American males of military age in 1860 was dead in 1865 due to some war-related cause. One out of 10, dead. And for what? Emancipation, yes. The Union, yes. But the promise that emancipation would produce some sort of an egalitarian biracial society, well, that was cruelly smashed by the failures of Reconstruction and the reunion, reunion, uh, only resulted in the 1880s in a revival of the same old alliance of corrupt Northern Democrats and the white-hooded Southern Democrats that had brought the country to the brink of war in the first place, right? The Jim Crow era and all of that legislation that uh, began uh, to be enacted after Republicans were driven from power in the few states that they had managed to win after the Civil War, North Carolina being one of them, by the way. The sheer volume of deconstruction, Human and economic, un, uh, it unhinged something in the American mind, he says. And uh, it left the nation ill prepared to receive a second shock, which was the publication of Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species, which was released in 1859, but the Civil War delayed its full impact on America until after Appomattox, okay? But he says when it was finally read and people started uh, knowing about Darwinism, um, it seemed the perfect explanation of the pointlessness of the Civil War, since the book portrayed physical existence itself as a pointless, directionless evolution by means of natural selection from nothing in particular to nothing in particular, right? That's what, that it helped to explain why everybody felt this hollowness, not everybody, but like just in general, the zeitgeist, right? In general, there was this disillusionment and what was all that for? Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be for anything because evolution, It's just we were this and now we're this other thing. In the new Darwinian universe, ideas were biological mechanisms. They did not convey truth. They were tools to assist one's adaptation to the relentless organic processes of natural selection. That's it. So the ideas, it's like the, 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 the fish that somehow or another has feet and comes up out of the water and starts breathing air and survives and then turns into like a human being, right? Like that's, but think of that except ideas. And this is what people were starting to uh, fuse together. These were like philosophers at the time, like Holmes and Pierce and James. James, uh, it's turned into this uh, philosophy of pragmatism. And what William James called it was, uh, for all, it was a class name, pragmatism, a class name for all sorts of Definite working values in experience for what works best. Pragmatism, what works best. Truth is not a stagnant property inherent in an idea. An idea, he said, becomes true. It's made true by events, okay? (laughs) This is pragmatism. The evaporation of confidence 
from disillusion to evolution to pragmatism. That thread pointed these uh, philosophers and historians, it pointed them towards the creation of a new American society, a society which had the chastened flexibility of a Darwinian organism rather than the rigidity of abstract truths. What is this running up against? Do you understand like where this is headed? What this is about to collide with? Right? The, the Creating that society was what progressivism promised to do, and it's running right up against natural law. Right? That's what's happening. Professional American historians were in various ways, this is the book by Bradley Watson, he says professional American historians were in various ways thoroughly progressive from the get-go, largely because the historians shared this infatuation with the ever-shifting interactions between organism and environment, and that characterized Darwin's evolution, right? And that became so vital a component of progressive politics. No longer was history to be understood as the story of how, in Samuel Johnson's description, how every government is perpetually degenerating towards corruption and has to be rescued at certain periods by the resuscitation of its first principles and the reestablishment of its original constitution. Right? That's one line of thinking, That's a, and, and that's one that I tend to uh, uh, agree with. Uh, I subscribe to this idea that every government is perpetually degenerating towards corruption because that's the natural state of things, right? The natural state of things is to decay and particularly man-made things and governments are man-made and they decay and man has this, you know, really great ability to help further that along, to screw things up. So yes, governments decay and so they have to be sort of reset um, rescued at certain periods uh, by the resuscitation of its first principles, right? Let's get back to basics. You hear me talk about this in various ways when I talk about, for example, core services at the Asheville City Council that they ignore. Like, why do they ignore these things? Because they're degenerating away from their core principles, the reason you exist. It's to do these things that seem mundane later on to the future generations, right? There no longer were any first principles to which anybody could recur. History must become the measure of how external environments force change and adaptation upon societies. This was the progressive view, the taking of Darwinism and applying it to history. What Samuel Johnson was uh, calling uh, corruption, well, this was just another form of organic development, right? There's no more point in resuscitating a society's first principles, than there would be in reviving the trilobite or the woolly mammoth, right? To encounter progressive politics was, for the new professional historians, it was love at first sight for these people, right? They were already on board. <laughs> they were already there. And so it was precisely this overlap in assumptions shared by progressivism and the historians that blinded so many of them to progressivism's most fundamental premise. And it turned histories of progressivism into yet another strange case of the dog in the night who doesn't bark because he sees nobody strange enough to make him bark, right? So what the author here, Bradley Watson, is warning at the outset is that the progressive idea, simply put, is that the, the principled American constitutionalism of fixed natural rights and limited and dispersed powers must be overturned and replaced by an organic 
evolutionary model of the Constitution that facilitates the uh, authority of experts dedicated to the expansion of the public sphere and political control, especially at the national level. This idea opened into five major applications. Number one is that there's no fixed or eternal principles that govern. Okay, See what I mean? It's running right up against natural law. It, it's in conflict. And this is, the, this is the great debate that we still have right now. And people don't even realize they're arguing this way. They don't even understand these principles. They're just arguing for policies. That's why I always try to, I always try to drive down to what is the core principle being espoused in a particular policy or position or an argument, right? Um, there are no fixed or eternal principles that govern. That's the first of the five uh, fundamental ideas here. Number two, the state and its component parts are organic. And they're involved in a struggle for uh, never-ending growth, right? This makes sense to most conservatives. We recognize that, you know, government is a, a useful servant and a fearful master like fire, uh, and uh, you want it, it it's small enough uh, so it can do the things you want it to do, but uh, be careful because its natural tendency is to take more liberty from the people, and the people's natural tendency is to yield liberty for more security, and uh, that's the way towards tyranny and oppression, right? So this makes sense to conservatives, modern conservatives, limited government folks, libertarians. What else? Number three, the democratic openness and experimentalism, get this, are the fertilizer of this organic state. So if you think of the state as an organic state that's constantly in a struggle for never-ending growth, it's trying to adapt like evolution, you know, it's trying to grow and adapt to the environment and there's no right or wrong. It's just it's just a being and democratic openness and experimentalism are the fertilizer for that state. And number four, the state and its components exist only in history, capital H history, and that some individuals stand outside of that process, an elite class possessed of intelligence uh, who provide the messianic leadership needed to move the process smoothly along. That these corollaries flew straight into the face of the American founders hardly needs any explanation, he says. Right? You can you understand what... Like, we look at this now, and uh, we recognize uh, how it's in conflict. But these historians at the time, this is how they were like, oh, Darwinism, this is it, it explains it all. And it's like they never even recognized what they were arguing, what the, what this philosophy required. And it, it required um, the abandonment of natural law. By the time historians began to write about progressivism itself— See, this is where this is where it becomes really important because it's one thing you got a bunch of these you know egghead uh, professors hanging around Cambridge and uh, they're like you know we really like this progressivism it's fantastic and blah 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 right but what are they what are their professions right they're historians which means what right they're when they start writing about progressivism when they start talking about this philosophy. Right? Any sense that the progressive mentality might have begun with a philosophical rejection of the founding fathers and the Constitution is gone. It evaporated. The historians of progressivism described progressivism's emergence as if it, too, was some evolution out of a rudderless historical flux, is what he calls it. Right? The fundamental offense of progressivism is the abandonment of natural law 
and the Constitution, the fundamental offense. In the progressives' embrace of the evolutionary trope and rejecting any account of an unchangeable human nature, the progressives went deep to attack the heart of American constitutionalism. In conclusion, he says, after 1865, it was economic power which emerged as the greatest challenge to liberty, and if one can say anything in defense of the progressives, it should be that they saw this shift all too clearly, even if they mistook the best means for dealing with it. Now, on the other hand, it'd be less than candid not to admit that historians have been much, uh, have been too much, rather, the ideological allies of progressivism, and as such, uh, they, they don't see their own rejection of natural rights constitutionalism as progressivism's master flaw. The criticisms that the historians of progressivism level at the movement revolve blandly around the complaint that it wasn't progressive enough. And Bradley Watson in this book finds the historians at fault for their blindness towards progressivism's original sin. But the cure, he says... um, is in the same cure that political scientists found for themselves. There is uh, as yet no such thing as a natural law history or a theory of history built around natural law and natural rights, at least one which does not sink merely into a pale imitation of the so-called Whig interpretation of history. But there should be, they say. Maybe the Claremont Institute uh, has a new intellectual task before it. And maybe it does. A natural law history just like progressives have their own view of history and like the 1619 project and all of those efforts maybe there should be a natural law history and people should fund that in order to have that area experience a renaissance of sorts all right that's a wrap for this philosophy class well this episode (laughs) i uh i appreciate you listening remember please subscribe to the podcast give it a thumbs up in the reviews and consider becoming a patron of the program I'd appreciate it. Thanks so much for the support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.